hope is an ordinary word with an extraordinary breath. Used almost daily, hope you are well. Used almost lightly, hope it doesn't rain. Used with expectancy, hope it's a girl. Used with desperation, hope it's not cancer. But hope is more than just a word with extraordinary breath. It's why we climb out of bed every day. It's why we dream dreams. It's why we keep on trying. It's why we wait with joy and expectancy. The absence of hope leaves an extraordinary darkness. It robs us of motivation. It robs us of even the desire to dream. It robs us of comfort and joy. It robs us of the will to live. True hope finds its foundation in an extraordinary birth, born in the fullness of time, born of a virgin, born a king, born to die. True hope finds its strength in an extraordinary life, a life lived with wisdom and knowledge, a life lived with humility and service, a life lived with poverty and persecution, a life lived without sin. Our only hope rests on an extraordinary resurrection. Because He rose, we will rise. Because He lives, we will live. Because He rules, we will rule. Because He is worthy, we will worship. Hope in a hopeless world is found only in an extraordinary man. He is the better hope. He is the hope of nations. He is the hope of eternal life. He is the God of hope. Romans 15.13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That's Romans 15.13. Wonderful reading written by uh, one of our friends from North Carolina. Some of you met her. She's been out here with the summer groups many, many times. Leslie Fannin. And uh, got that in our Christmas letter this week. Wanted to share it with you. Great thought on hope. Jesus Christ is our only hope. And we know that Christmas has been so commercialized that the real reason for the season is, is totally lost to most folks in our world. And even we who know the Lord Jesus as our Savior and profess to be following Him often fail at communicating Bible truth to our children and our grandkids. Our kids' excitement about getting gifts often overwhelms their understanding of why we even have this celebration. But I trust that in your home you will diligently labor to not allow the gift-giving and the family events surrounding Christmas to overshadow your teaching and discipling of your children and grandchildren regarding what this season is all about. I'm sure most of you could probably tell me the Christmas story, uh, probably with great detail. And I'm not going to tell you the story of the birth of Christ again today, but I trust that perhaps in your family gatherings together, uh, you will read it this year. Certainly read it on your own if you're wondering where to find it or what to look for. It's the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 and the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. And if you read those two chapters, you will pretty much get the entire Christmas story there. But I do want to share with you this morning several Bible verses, just short passages from the Scripture, that explain in very practical terms the reason for the season. First of all, we're going to look at where we actually looked a little bit last week, Hebrews chapter 10. 
We spoke of this at the Christmas program last week, but I want to show you this passage. I want you to read it along with me, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is not often a New Testament book we go to at Christmas, but in chapter 10, the Scripture records for us some fascinating things that that the Lord Jesus Christ said to God the Father. He is quoting from Psalm 40, uh, but we are going to read here in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at the first seven verses. Hebrews 10, the first seven verses. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. Now you're wondering what he's saying there. He's simply saying that all of the offerings and sacrifices that the Old Testament law prescribed, they were just a shadow of the things to come. They were just a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ to come. And he said those sacrifices which they make year after year after year after year can never actually perfect anyone, can never purify them, can never make them totally right with God, can never make them righteous in their standing before God. Because he said if that's true, verse 2, for then they would not, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshiper, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. In other words, if they, if they truly had, were able to, to, to offer those Old Testament sacrifices and make themselves totally right with God in every way, then there was no reason for the sacrifices to continue year after year after year. But he says in verse 3, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. It isn't possible. It was just a temporary covering. Therefore, verse 5, when he came into the world, meaning Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, he's speaking to God the Father, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. When Jesus says sacrifice and offering you did not desire, he's simply stating that the entire Old Testament system was temporary. God did not want human beings bringing sacrifices and offerings forever. Because the Old Testament sacrifices for sin were never designed to completely remove sin. They were acts of obedience to God. They were designed to remind us that we are sinners, as verse 3 said. That in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. So they were acts of obedience to God designed to remind us that we're sinners, designed to remind us that we needed forgiveness, to remind us that death is the cost for sin, and to remind us that the ultimate Savior was one day coming to make the final sacrifice for sin. So God's answer to our sin problem was not do sacrifices forever. That was not God's desire. God's desire was, the Lord Jesus Christ says, a body you have prepared for me. And as we mentioned last week, how was the body of Jesus Christ prepared? What was that all about? It was through the virgin birth. It was a special 
one time, never before done, never since done circumstance where the Holy Spirit of God actually supernaturally caused Mary to become pregnant. It was the virgin birth. And it had to be so. It had to be that way. Jesus Christ had to be God and man. He had to be able to die for our sin. You remember Romans 5.12, 1 Corinthians 15.22, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. All three of those verses teach that our sin nature was imparted to us through our fathers. So if Jesus had a human father, then he was a normal human being. If he was a normal human being, then he was a sinner. If he was a sinner, he could not be our Savior. So without the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, we are absolutely, totally lost. It is the hinge that swings the entire doctrine of forgiveness and salvation. It's an essential foundation stone to our faith and to our forgiveness. So, the Lord Jesus Christ says to God the Father, A body you have prepared for me, so I come to do your will. Will, O God. Jesus Christ came to this earth willingly, voluntarily, as the perfect God-man with his perfectly prepared human body, virgin-born, no human father, so carrying no curse of sin, perfectly sinless and holy, so he could be our Savior, the final once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And God the Son looked down at this broken world and all of its broken people, and he says to God the Father, Yes, I will go there. I will become one of them. I will die for them because I have come to do your will, O God, a body you have prepared for me. God had a plan for our salvation, and that's what Christmas is all about. Second passage of Scripture, if you would turn to the book of Galatians in chapter 4. Galatians in chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, two verses. Verse 4 and verse 5. Galatians 4, verse 4 and verse 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Jesus stands out among all other figures of religion and history and humanity because he alone possesses the qualifications to be the savior of our world. When the Apostle Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. He is implying to us very strongly that, the, that Jesus Christ's existence did not begin in the manger in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ existed in heaven for all of eternity. As you well know in John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And you say, what is the Word? Well, he explains it in chapter, in verse 14 of that chapter, uh, where, where he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know the Word is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And so the Apostle Paul writes here, In the fullness of time, when everything was lined up in the whole world, all the nations of the world were what they were supposed to be, all the people of the world were everything that had to be all in arrangement, in the fullness of time, when everything was ready, 
God says, all right, now it's time. He sends forth his son who has existed with him for all of eternity. He's God the son. He was born of a woman, again, the virgin birth of Christ. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So we could all receive the adoption of sons. You see, if God alone can save, which is true, God's the only one who can save, then the Savior has to be God. If man has to bear the punishment of sin because man has sinned, then the Savior also has to be a man. If, if, man, if the man who bears the punishment of sin can't have his own sin because he, he, he can't have his own sin if he died for somebody else's, then there's nobody but Jesus Christ who could ever fulfill that role. He was God. He was man. He was sinless. He sent forth his son in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. In other words, he had to keep the law of God perfectly. He had to be absolutely sinless. So at the perfectly planned moment, God sent forth his son, who was uniquely qualified to accomplish God's plan of salvation. Then the third verse we'll take a look at. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. It's a small book, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. As I was thumbing through my page here, I went right past it. Go back there. 1st John chapter 3. 1st John chapter 3. Beautiful book in 1st John. John writes in verse 8. 1st John 3, verse 8. He who sins is of the devil, as for the devil has sinned from the beginning. In other words, a person who lives in habitual practicing of sin, they're doing so because the devil is leading them to do so. He said that's what the devil does all the time. But that second half of that verse, notice he says, For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus Christ come? To destroy the works of the devil. You know, the incarnation of Christ, the God becoming man in the fullness of time, God sending forth His Son, a body you have prepared for me, those wonderful thoughts on the incarnation of Christ. It is such an amazing, miraculous event that even the most brilliant human mind could barely comprehend all of its eternal implications. The story is so incredible that it could have only come from the mind of God. No mere mortal could ever imagine this plot, much less write it down in coherent fashion. And then orchestrate all of the details of all of humanity. The rise and fall of kings, the rise and fall of nations, governments, the births and deaths of millions of individuals, etc., etc. To line everything up just perfectly so that God's plan could be accomplished for Jesus Christ to come. I have mentioned to you in time past, and I, and now I want to use this illustration with you again today, when we think about all these things that Jesus Christ did in destroying the works of the devil. 
and, and this body you have prepared for me. And on all of these great truths that, that were forecasted and prophesied in the Old Testament. I like to think of it as a jigsaw puzzle. Now when you buy a fact, certainly I'm, I'm no jigsaw puzzle person. I'm the worst jigsaw puzzle person on the planet. So I have a terrible, now if it's the, and it says ages, you know, three to four, I can do those. Okay, they've only got like nine pieces. I can get those together. But those great big huge ones, thousand piece puzzles, that's not my bag. I have a daughter who loves to do those and she does them very well. I assure you, she did not inherit that from me. Uh, that, 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 that ability. But when you take the jigsaw puzzle, you, you dump it out on a big table and, you, and, all the, and everything's all jumbled up and then you take the picture and you set the picture over there and you kind of look at the picture and then you start sorting things out and you start with it. I think you start with the edges and the corners and all that. That's what it seems like the, the ladies at my house do. And they put all that together and they're looking at the picture and they're kind of comparing that and putting it together. But just, but, but suppose you had a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and you couldn't look at the picture all you, you just had the pieces but you didn't get the picture to go by they took the box away and they said here figure this out well what's the picture about well i'm not going to tell you well i mean is it is it well it's a it's it's a what do you say that it's a christmas picture oh is it a nativity scene i'm not going to tell you you just, you just sit there and try and figure it out. That's what the Old Testament was regarding the coming of Christ to many people in Jesus' day. God had given hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces of the puzzle, but nobody saw the picture until Christ came. And suddenly... When the Lord Jesus Christ was there and he began to teach and he began to quote the scriptures and he began to teach his disciples, then all the pieces start coming together. And then they look at the picture and then they see, oh, this piece goes here and this piece goes there and that piece goes here and this piece goes here. And so we've got this marvelous jigsaw puzzle of all these prophecies about Christ. You see, back in Psalm 40, when, when they quoted what we just looked at in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, they, they wouldn't have necessarily thought that was a messianic prophecy, but then Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, inspired, of course, by the Holy Spirit, says, oh no, when it says, a body you have prepared for me, I have come to do your will, O God, that's Jesus Christ talking to God the Father. Oh, boy, now that makes sense. The Apostle Paul looks at, in the fullness of time... God sent forth His Son. When everything was lined up exactly the way it needed to be, when all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle were all there, God sent forth His Son and said, All right, God the Son, it's time for you to crash into the reality of this world. See, God was revealing pieces of the puzzle for several thousand years before Christ came, and God gave the first piece of the puzzle to Adam and Eve the very day that they'd sinned. In Christ, through the Gospels, we see all the pieces of the puzzle coming together to reveal who Jesus was and why He came. The story of our redemption is a powerful argument for the sovereign, omnipotent, compassionate Creator and Lord. Nobody else could ever imagine such a plan or make every detail of it happen. 
So the God of heaven and earth looked down on his rebellious and broken creation with eyes of mercy, and he offered the only thing that would ever solve the problem. He would crash through the portals of time, he would take on human flesh, he would invade his sin-sick world with wisdom and grace and glory and truth, and he himself would become the greatest gift ever given to doomed prisoners of sin. He would forgive our rebellion. He would restore our relationship with God. He would crush the enemy of our souls. He would ultimately transform us into his likeness to dwell with him in peace forever. Who could actually create that plan? Who could actually execute such a precise plan? Nobody but God himself. Nobody but the creator and ruler of the universe. Which is why the angels sang that day, glory to God in the highest. On a very practical, down-to-earth level, the gospel of Jesus Christ, built on this foundation of the, of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is designed to transform us. God's intent was not just to forgive us, but to, but to change us. He takes us in our sin, and then He begins the process of transforming us into His likeness. He came to destroy the works of the devil, John writes here. The, 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 the penalty for sin can be forgiven. The power of sin can be broken. It, it is a glorious gift to undeserving sinners. No wonder the Apostle Paul, or the, the Apostle John wrote in the very first verse of chapter, of verse, uh, chapter three here, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Wow. What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Why? Because that body that was prepared for the Lord Jesus Christ, that virgin-born Son of God, when the whole world and everything was lined up just right, Paul says, God sent forth His Son and He came to earth because He is going to destroy the works of the devil. And boy, have they been a problem for us. How can Christmas not be merry when we understand what it's all about? Then I want you to look, if you would, at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Another marvelous, pivotal, theological chapter in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5 is, is a wonderful, wonderful chapter. 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. <coughs> One verse here that the Apostle Paul writes, and uh, again, we could read, there's so many wonderful preaching opportunities here in 2 Corinthians 5, just as there is in 1 John 3 and those other passages. 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse 15. Just one verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 15. And he died for all, meaning, of course, Christ, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Christ died so that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Think about that little three-word description of what sin does to us. Live for themselves. 
That's what we all do for the begin, from the beginning of our lives. We all tend to be focused on what we want and what we think we need. We want it all our way. We want everybody to stay out of our way. We want to be in control of our lives, and we want to live by our own rules. We, we, we tend to have this, this unspoken thought that we want to be agreed with and accepted and respected, whether we deserve it or not. And in our self-centered sin natures, we, we tell ourselves that we need everything that we want, and we, then we judge God and other people by their willingness to give it to us or get it for us. You see, if we're honest, we all wrestle with that old sin nature concept of living for ourselves. It is a basic foundational part of our sinful human nature. That's what we try to discipline out of little children. They live for themselves. I, I want to be picked up. I cry. I'm hungry. I cry. I don't feel good. I cry. And I want my mother to jump when I cry because I am living for me. And, and as children grow, we try to get them to wait. We try to encourage them to defer their gratification. We try, you know, and in fact, all through our lives, if, we, if, if we're honest, we, we wrestle with living for ourselves. It's a basic foundational part of our sinful human nature. It explains why we get irritated and why we get impatient. It explains why some folks struggle constantly with being unhappy. It explains most of our conflicts with other people and why we get angry with God. Because He didn't give us what we want or what we think we deserve. You see, we all wrestle with living for ourselves. And during the Christmas season, we celebrate the fact that Christ came not only to destroy the works of the devil, but also so that we could stop living for ourselves and start living for Him. As Paul said, Christ died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. Christ came so we would not be living, so that I would stop living for me and start living for Him. Christ came so that you would stop living for you and start living for Him. He came to rescue us from the effects of sin by destroying the works of the devil. And He came to rescue us from us who are living for ourselves. You know, way back in the Garden of Eden, when Satan came to Eve and he said to her, If you just eat the fruit, you'll be like God. You know, I mean, did God really say that? Of course, we've talked about this many, many times. He's, he's getting Eve to question the Word of God. Did God really say that? Is that really what He meant? You know, if you just eat the fruit, you can be like God. You know what He's basically saying to him? He, he, yeah, Satan is basically saying to Eve, you don't need God. You can be one yourself. You can have all the things God has. You can be just like God if, if, you, if you'll eat this fruit because you don't really need God. And ever since she took the fruit and gave it to Adam and Adam took the fruit, knowing full well exactly what he was doing, people have been struggling with this concept of, of, of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, living for ourselves, those voices of self-sufficiency, very, very attractive to us because we don't like to think of ourselves as weak and needy. We don't like to think of ourselves as being dependent on anyone. We don't like to think of ourselves as, as, as people who need to be rescued from ourselves. We like the story of the self-made man who pulled himself up by his own bootstraps and did it all on his own. 
with no one to thank but himself. Very appealing to, to the human nature. But the message of the gospel it is devastatingly humbling. Because it tells me that I am in a hopeless, impossible, irreversible condition apart from Jesus Christ. You know, even in Adam, even Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they couldn't make it on their own. God came down every day and spoke with them in the Garden of Eden. Even before they sinned, God came and spoke with them every day. They still needed God even before sin. Because God designed us to need Him. I've heard people say over the years, there's this God-shaped hole in the soul of every person. And only when we, we receive Christ as our Savior, only when we are obedient to the Word of God, can that satisfaction, can that hole be filled. You see, self-reliance, self-sufficiency is, is a lie that leads us nowhere good. We don't have what we need inside ourselves to live for God the way that we should. Which is why the Apostle Paul says in this basically just a sideline statement here in the middle of 2 Corinthians 5. He's talking about being reconciled to God. He's talking about living for God. And almost as a sideline statement he says, And Christ died for us so that we could stop living for ourselves and start living for Him. Great thoughts. He came not only to rescue us from the effects of sin, He came to rescue us from us. Do you know the Christ of Christmas? And I don't mean, do you know about the Christ of Christmas? I mean, do, do you know Him? Is He your Savior? Do you have a true relationship with Him? Has, has He rescued you? And if you can truly say that Jesus Christ is your Savior, are you living for Him? He didn't just come to forgive us. He came to transform us. He came to change us. To make us more like Him and less like the sin-cursed world that we live in. God's grace destroys all the things that bind us and blind us. And His grace frees us to love Him and serve Him. To serve His purposes and His cause and His kingdom. He can forgive anything and He can change anyone. This Christmas season... Even when we know Christ as our Savior, let's get to know Him even better. So we can truly say, we know the Christ of Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we know that there are millions of people in our country who don't really have a clue what Christmas is all about. Oh, they might see nativity scenes. They might have some sort of Christian background that tells them that this is about the birth of Christ and we see Mary in the manger and Joseph looking over her shoulder and, and all the other pictures that we have of these, uh, these nativity scenes and nice, warm, fuzzy, sentimental thoughts about the little baby in the manger. But Lord, when we think about the theology behind it all, it is quite astounding to us that from eternity past you have designed and planned this event and planned this event so that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would take on a prepared body, virgin-born, sinless, uncursed by sin, 
would live perfectly to keep the law of God, would destroy the works of the devil, and would help us to live for him and not ourselves. Lord, I pray this Christmas season that we would be reminded afresh of these things and that we would be stirred to greater things for God in the coming year. Lord, I pray you'd bless our times together with our families this Christmas season. May we focus on Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done on our behalf. Help us, we pray, to not fall prey to all the commercialism of Christmas and really focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.